Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining us today as we continue our tale of Lucky Lucan, who probably in 1964 is feeling pretty lucky. With the passing of his father, the 6th Earl of Lucan, in 1964, the times they are a-changing. There are so many ways for this story to go differently than this story goes. It is in this decade, from 1964 to 1974, focusing on the marriage and divorce of the Lucans, as well as a very nasty custody battle that Lucky Lucan really does make and then seal his own fate and downfall. What do they say? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? That is not this episode. Dominic Dunn writes of the relationship between Lucky and Veronica from The Gentleman Vanishes in Vanity Fair in a story in which there are many differing opinions on almost everything. There is no one who does not agree that Lord and Lady Lucan were miserably mismatched. He had gambled almost nightly for 11 years and had lost his inherited fortune as well as all the money he had won in an early spectacular winning streak, playing Sherman de Fer at a casino in Deville, after which he decided to chuck his brief and unremarkable career in banking, where he is best remembered by former colleagues as a good bridge player, to take up what Oscar Wilde referred to as the great aristocratic art of doing absolutely nothing. Nothing, that is, except more gambling and taking most of his meals at the Claremont Club. He played and lost, played and lost, played and lost. The Lucans fought over everything, even his Doberman Pinscher's farts, which struck him funny and disgusted her. Lady Lucan was in the unfortunate position of being disliked by almost everyone. From all reports, she was not a lot of laughs. A woman who had invited her to a ladies' lunch party in San Moritz after Lucan abandoned her for the backgammon boards told me she sat down at the luncheon table and said, Someone at this table has cancer and will soon be dead. Charles Benson, one-time racing correspondent for the Daily Express, quotes her as shouting, She's a whore about a perfectly innocent woman, and saying about another, She's jealous of me because I'm the Countess of Lucan and she's not even married. Once, she threw a glass of red wine on the white dress of a woman who was blocking her view of a television set and yelled, We don't want the likes of you here. It is not surprising that she was not much in demand socially. Lucan's friendships, for the most part, were with men with whom he shared a love of sports, a love of nightlife, a love of gambling, and a loathing of the conventional work ethic. Women in his set were for providing sex, for having babies, for running the household efficiently, for giving dinner parties. They were not equal partners. Most of the wives accepted or went along with their lot. Lady Lucan did not. She was a constant and annoying presence in the gambling club. 
Dominic Ellis once told a friend, Lucky didn't really like women or sex. I think he saw women as an inferior race. He was often embarrassed in their company. I would say that he performed only the occasional Bof de la Politesse. At one point, Lucan was considered handsome enough to be asked to screen test for parts in films, once by producer Covey Broccoli for the part of James Bond after Sean Connery left the series. I spoke to Broccoli and his wife at the Elephant unveiling in Bel Air, and they both remembered his test. It wasn't very good, said Broccoli, but they both said how much they had liked him. Vittorio de Sica also tested Lucan to play an English lord opposite Shirley MacLaine in Woman Times Seven, but he came off as wooden on screen. Charles Benson, who had known Lucan since Eaton, said, He was very right-wing and never compromised in front of people. He never watered it down in front of liberals. He would talk about hanging and flogging and foreigners and the N-word equally to shock and to get a reaction. Lucan seemed very depressed about England, very anti-immigration. He predicted a revolution and said he knew how he was going to leave the country when it came. When he vanished, people remembered that. It is noticeable when Lucky just disappears, gone. Noticeable because his marriage, the separation of Lucky and Veronica, and the custody battle. Y'all, the Lucans were legendary in the Mayfair set. Let's investigate. Welcome to 1964, a whole new year full of new opportunities. It is in January of 1964 that Lucky's father, the sixth Earl of Lucan, passes away. And for the bleak Christmas the couple shared just a few weeks back, things really are looking up. Lucky will receive his 250,000 pound inheritance and titles and lands too also a golf course. Lucky's going to get some minor titles as well, but it is the Earl of Lucan that is the big deal title in play here. Veronica, the new bride, is now Countess Lady Lucan. And big congrats to the couple. They have a baby on the way. The Lucans will purchase a townhome in the very posh Belgravia section of London, located at 46 Lower Belgrave Street, for the ridiculously low price of £17,500, including curtains and carpets. Their first child, Francis, is born in October 1964. And now Lucky Lucan is a married man, a father. Will this change him into becoming a family man? Not really. Lucky is addicted to gambling. And Lucky wants his wife to be there at the Claremont Club just about every night to support him in his career endeavor. As of 1965, the Lucans will employ a nanny, Nanny Jenkins, for the children, of which there will be two more children along the way in this marriage. 
A son, George, is born in September 1967 and a daughter, Camilla, in June of 1970. Doing the whole family thing? Not so much Lucky Lucan. He's looking to keep up his playboy image. With most of his inheritance being spent, what isn't spent, Lucky is losing at the tables. He has no real job, but his friend John Aspinall is going to connect him to something that might be lucrative. I mean, if Lucky doesn't get in his own way, which as you may garner, Lucky probably will get in his own way. See, the newlyweds don't really have all that much cash, right? Lucky is losing oftentimes. There's a lot of feast or famine, depending on when his yearly trust check comes in. And Lucky, he is flaunting wealth and a status that his bank account is not really able to support. Now remember, John Aspinall will make a fortune taking money from the landed peerage. I mean, you have to have your own private zoo. But once John Aspinall taps all his buddies out, Aspinall realizes that some of those buddies, especially Lord Bingham, could be very useful along the way. Lucky is going to take a gig at the Claremont Club. Again, we heard in the last episode as a blue. Aspinall and Lucan start a Baccarat game in which Lucky should get a percentage of the bank but it is undignified for a peer to be a card dealer. And, well, Lucky isn't really so cool, calm, and collected being the guy who's supposed to moderate the table. So the gig will change a bit to bringing out other high rollers. To be fair, it is an exclusive club. Remember dinner and dancing at Annabelle's right downstairs. People want to be included in the Mayfair set. The first few years are okay with the Lukens. I mean, besides his gambling and problems with alcohol and all that jazz, Veronica will have a son, George, so the pressure is off her about the heir. And it's about four years in where Veronica and Lucan really are living the jet-set life. They have a nanny. It's nothing for the kids to go to the seaside every summer with their nannies for vacation. The couple is off on their own in Monte Carlo or Monaco, somewhere else, anywhere else, with their jet-set friends. There is a fascinating interview with Lady Lucan many years later where this particular interchange happens. Lady Lucan is asked, didn't you miss your children? She says, no, they were being perfectly taken care of. I had no reason to worry about them. And the interviewer follows up and says, you know, I find that so hard to understand. It seems very cold. And Lady Lucan replies, all of my relationships have been cold. Isn't that something? It doesn't seem like the marriage included many happy times. Lady Lucan will continue and say he talked to me more before our marriage than he ever did after. He was on his own, and I was on my own wherever we went. So summers for John and Veronica, the Lord and Lady, they'll head to Monte or Monaco. Again, they don't have the money to do this, but it is essential to them to keep up appearances and all of that. 
Their home movies really are amazing. They are in all kinds of locales. Lucky likes filming, Veronica, but a few years in, cracks are definitely happening within the marriage. Lady Lucan says that he was not a good communicator. They don't go to any of the places they travel and enjoy each other's company. They're always on their own. When she inquires with her husband about this, Lucan says that's the point of marriage. We don't have to talk. What a charmer, right? Uh, The Lord's day was pretty routine. He's got 9 a.m. coffee and breakfast. He checks his letters, reads the papers, maybe walks the dog. But by lunchtime, John Bingham is at the Claremont with all of his buddies. He could head home sometime mid-afternoon, shower, kiss the kids, before it's back to the Claremont Club for the evening. Lucan does expect Veronica to go with him for many, many years, until Veronica doesn't go with him anymore. What stops that? Veronica Lady Lucan will begin a flirtation a few years into her marriage with a fellow Claremont Club member, fellow jet-setter Greville Howard. Greville Howard, one of those Howards, the Duke of Norfolk Howards. Just in the 20th century, Greville was educated at Eton as well. Again, everyone's playing in the same set here, friends. And Veronica, a wife who already has some problems with her gambler husband who may or may not be sharing their full financial situation. Here comes Greville Howard and He doesn't look like a terrible option at all. Veronica and Greville really like each other. There are numerous phone calls in between their intimate talks at the Claremont Club. They're summering together on different yachts and, again, all in the same scene. All of these people are hanging out with each other every day, whether it's in London or on vacation. Then... Even within the 60s and 70s, up to the 1990s, 20 years later when Dominic Dunn talks with them. Reinforcing here, this is a tight-knit, inclusive, and exclusive set that likes to keep their private affairs private, at least from the outside world. Don't let that fool you. Everyone in the set knows everything that's going on in the set. As we have heard, Countess Lucan is not well-liked to begin with, and if there's a way to take her out, it's not that hard to imagine a whisper campaign getting around about her having fallen in love with Greville Howard. Lady Lucan fully admits about Howard that he was far more a human being than my husband. But she does have a husband, and Lord Lucan will get wind of this particular affair. Lucan goes to Greville Howard and warns him off, scares Greville Howard so much that Greville immediately drops all contact with Veronica with no explanation. Veronica is bewildered. She's sad. Here is the sudden rejection. Veronica takes to her bed. She really takes it to heart. And this is when Lady Lucan will say, 
her battle with mental instability begins. Greville Howard will go on to marry his first wife in 1968 after this confrontation with Lucky Lucan, although Howard's first marriage will only last until 1972. Greville Howard, in the fullness of time, has been named a life peer. This happened in 2004 and is now known as Baron Howard of Rising. Back to Lady Lucan. She's down and out, suffering not only her own pain, but also being subjected to a bunch of dirty deeds here on her husband's part. John sees this as a way to gain control over a very vulnerable woman. He knows why she is very vulnerable. She is none the wiser. And at this point, John intersects into taking charge of Veronica's medical care. He does this with male doctors who are all associated within their very tight-knit set. It does not seem like Veronica really has anyone in her corner through a number of years. Lucan will want to send his wife to a hospital to be actually committed. A compromise is made to give Veronica antipsychotic drugs to take home. Anything that was bad in their relationship before this point from 1963 to 1968 only compounds here. Veronica's male doctors will believe her husband, not her. Lucan claims his wife is psychotic. Lady Lucan will say that once they start you in the mental health regime, once you're in the system, it is damn impossible to get out of it. Lucan, for however not nice he's been to his wife over five years of marriage, now he's just abjectly cruel. Lucan will express his desire to physically punish his wife. He will make the demand that he must beat the insanity out of Veronica. There is one key component which will become a very big deal when we get to our crime scene evidence. Back in the late 60s, Lord Lucan will physically punish his wife. He wants to demean her. This is in retribution for her flirtation with Greville Howard. Even Veronica says that the affair with she and Greville Howard never crossed the fatal end. Nonetheless, Lord Lucan and whatever hyped-up thing that is happening in his particular psychosis will decide to punish his wife with a sadomasochistic style. One night, the Lord will demand that the lady turn over for him so he can administer ten lashes with a cane. Lucan will do this a few times. It is a very strange way to talk with your partner about sexual tendencies. Lady Lucan says afterward he is affectionate, though. There's a lot of mental gaming here. But the key component I want you to remember is that cane that Lord Lucan beats his wife with is covered in plasters, band-aids from top to bottom, covered in sticky plasters. Remember that. 
Lucan at this point doubles down. He truly begins a sustained campaign of either being cruel to his wife or just outright ignoring her. Lucan is perhaps also actively looking to set himself up for what is coming. It is after Veronica's last two pregnancies, on top of everything else Veronica has suffered, that Veronica will suffer postpartum depression. Postpartum depression, postnatal depression, certainly was not understood in the late 1960s, early 1970s, like it is today. And Lord Lucan will make his wife's suffering into an art form. Lucan, admittedly, is an addict to so many things by now, to the gambling with its untold financial losses. He's addicted to the drugs and the drink. He's using many substances just involved in his day-to-day routine, He's got to stay up all night and then be able to go to sleep just to wake up and do the stay up all night at the club thing again the next day. Lucan is an addict to the abuse as well. From him to her on every level, it seems. Physical, mental, emotional too. And all the lying, there's so many lies. Put in some gaslighting too. And this is a truly, truly toxic relationship. Hyde Park is full of red flags. There is a particularly disastrous summer in Monte Carlo in 1972 where the entire Bingham family does go together. Veronica, though, will quickly return to England, leaving the two oldest children with their father. In the summer, everything is very close to falling apart, which it officially will by Christmas 1972. It's a hell of a twelfth night, friends. Two weeks after this particular holiday season, John Bingham, officially down on his luck, or maybe wants to make some moves to change his luck, will move out of the family home and into a flat on Elizabeth Street. Lord and Lady Lucan have officially separated. I mean, for real, January 73, Lucky packs up two bags, and leaves the house, never to return. Gone. Lucky will also begin his scheming to damage control this situation. Veronica, none the wiser, just thinks that Lucky will be back after a while, but Lucky doesn't come back. Veronica will visit a solicitor, a top barrister. She will file for desertion. Veronica needs money to pay for the home and the kids. During this time, Lucky Lucan will end up kidnapping his own children, but the police won't do anything about this because Lucky's their parent, too, and I really want you to know Lucky's running the board at this point. Lady Lucan accuses her husband of desertion. The solicitor will inquire with Lord Lucan, What can you pay to support your family? And Lucan is not so much into the, I want to pay them anything. This will begin years of court wrangling and accusations. And oh, friends, it is messy. Lucan will hire private investigators. 
Lucan will befriend the nanny as well as nannies of other families just to get the dirt, to gain intelligence. Lucan, one of his favorite games, is to provoke his soon-to-be ex-wife on telephone calls. He looks to specifically get a rise out of her, all the while taping these phone calls. I want you to remember the added pressure here of losing money hand over fist. And all of this activity costs cash. The poundage doesn't come cheap here. It will cost Lucan about 20,000 pounds to take his wife to court. And Lucan is going to lose badly in this custody fight. All of the plans, the plotting, the scheming, the machinations he has done end up in court looking way worse on him than they ever reflect on his wife. It is clearly evident that in these recorded conversations, John is looking to make Veronica snap. The judge sees right through it. It just sounds a lot like you recorded yourself gaslighting your wife, man. Lady Lucan is granted full custody of the three children, but with a caveat. She must have a nanny. Lord Lucan is awarded partial custody of every other weekend and half of the holidays. However, there is no bonus caveat for Lord Lucan that he needs a nanny. Interesting that. About the custody battle, Dominic Dunwell write, Lady Lucan had recently bested her husband in court over custody of their children. Lucan had described his wife to the judge as unstable and unbalanced. He had employed private detectives to follow her. He had made secret recordings of her with a concealed tape recorder in an effort to show that she was mad. Lady Lucan had described her husband to the court as a gambler. Lucan's compulsive gambling was notorious. It was as necessary for him as heroin is for an addict. It mattered little to him that his performance at the tables and backgammon boards was not highly praised by the great gamblers of his time. He had the bug, and he had it bad. The judge had decided in favor of Lady Lucan as the more fit parent to bring up the children. He had found Lucan arrogant. Moreover, one of the many nannies who had come and gone in the Lucan household testified that Lucan had on occasion beaten up his wife, pushed her down the stairs, and once tried to strangle her. Lucan was bitter over the loss of the children. He was obsessed. He could talk of nothing else. His ramblings about his wife began to bore his friends, none of whom had ever liked her in the first place or understood why he had married her. He started drinking great amounts of vodka, chain-smoking, and, according to Charles Benson, sweating profusely, even at the backgammon board. Dominic Elvis, who was to play a major role in the tragic tale that followed, told James Fox, the author of a brilliant account of the Lucan affair, that he had said to his friend Lucan just before the murder, you're not the first person to be divorced 
nor the first to have a wife who is erratic and strange. You can't go on living this nightmare. You've got to brace up and be a man. And when they're grown up, you'll have the children around. You can't go on bending everyone's ear with this problem. Elvis then added to Fox, I thought I'd got through to him, but he hadn't. Dominic Elvis, I want you to keep that name. He's another in the Mayfair set. As Dunn mentions, Dominic Elvis will play a major role in the coming arc. Dominic is Lucky's friend and thought he had made an impact into Lucky's thinking, but again, not so much. Dunn continues, The court costs of the custody case were 40,000 pounds or approximately $60,000, which Lucan simply did not have. He was already deeply in debt through gambling losses. In addition, there were bounced checks, overdrafts at four banks, school fees unpaid, money borrowed from a money lender at 48% interest per annum for six months. In the weeks before the murder, he also borrowed money from several of his friends. Taki Theodorakopoulos, the gossip columnist and international character, told me he lent Lucan 7,000 pounds of his own money and raised 3,000 pounds more from another Greek. A detective who worked on the case told me that it is in the official police report that Salim Zilka, another close friend, lent Lucan 3,000 pounds the same week. Stephen Raphael, a gambler who was a father figure to Lucan, also lent him money that week. A month before the murder, Lucan turned up at James Goldsmith's house in Paris and asked to borrow money, saying he needed it to buy his children from his wife. Goldsmith does not lend money. In the biography Billionaire, Yvonne Fallon reports that Goldsmith said, I'll give you the money, but Lucan would not accept money as a gift. Instead, Goldsmith agreed to guarantee a loan for him with the Midland Bank. In addition, Lucan put the family silver up for auction at Christie's. The 13 lots of family plate were billed merely as, quote, the property of a nobleman, unquote. The auction came up two weeks after the murder. By then, the proceeds were of no benefit to him. All right, investigators, let's take some stock here of the hand we are holding. By September of 1974, Lucky is 60,000 pounds in debt, if not more, he has given the 13 lots of his family silver to Christie's for auction. You know you have to be desperate to poffer up the family silver. Lucan is borrowing and begging for money. Problems in Peerage City, this one. But luckily for Veronica, she has found a very nice nanny. Remember the custody agreement with the couple calls for a nanny? And in September of 1974, here comes a very nice woman named Sandra Rivet. Sandra's 29 years old and has recently separated from her own husband of seven years. Sandra's a lovely woman. She feels a great deal 
of sympathy and understanding for the situation that Lady Lucan and the Lucan children are in. Sandra gets on great with the kids, now ages 10, 7, and 3. Sandra gets especially along well with the oldest daughter, Frances, and congratulations. Sandra Rivet is hired in September and will have nine weeks on the job before her fatal end. It seems like the trajectories are set in this act of our story. Veronica, having handled the custody battle, trying to settle her life down, create some normalcy for her family with the new nanny. Things should be looking up for Veronica and the kids, but never trust a drugged-up aristocrat who was down on his luck. Again, these last few months have been spectacularly bad for Lucky Lucan. It's a losing streak. He's had him before, but this one is particularly terrible. Frankly, we can't feel too sorry for him. His losing streak is due to his own fatal flaw. Flaws, really. His life is turned, and he thinks the fates are clearly against him. With the cards and the courts, it's all disaster. Every underhanded thing Lucky Lucan has done is coming back to haunt him in spades. But it is not my estimation that John Lucky Bingham is that haunted. He will just make different plans to force the hands of fate, the cards that are being dealt his way, so to speak. Lucky wants to deal the game and play the game, too. Here, Lucky's going to make some big decisions. He's going to take a big gamble, probably the biggest gamble he's ever made. By the time we make it into November 1974, Lucky is in motion. Dunn writes, On the day before the murder, Lucan did three notable things. He took a piano lesson. He was a good piano player, but slightly ashamed of it, as it seemed at odds with his macho image. His piano teacher later reported that his hands had not been the hands of a man under duress. He went to the bookseller, Hayward Hill, the smart bookshop on Curzon Street, where the royal family buy their books, and where Nancy Mitford worked as a salesgirl during World War II. There he purchased Millionaire's Islands, about the luxurious hideaways of Greek tycoons. On the cover was the front of a Rolls-Royce. I remember it extremely well, said John Sumarez Smith, the proprietor, who waited on the pier that afternoon. He was not someone on whom we relied for our livelihood. That night, Lucan attended a party at the home of Salim Zilka, who 19 years later gave the party in Bel Air, at which the bronze elephant was unveiled. Back to me here for a moment, friends. You're going to be hearing about this bronze elephant in the future, but do add another name, Salim Zilka, into one of those fellows in the Mayfair set. Back to Dunn's writing. We had a big dinner the night before the murder, a men's dinner with Bridge and Backgammon, at Salim's apartment in London, said Mary Haley, who has been the acknowledged girlfriend of Salim Zilka for 25 years. I was the only woman there. Lucky arrived early that night. Guests were asked for at 8, but he came in at 7.15. He had had a lot to drink. 
He always drank a lot of vodka. I remember he also stayed very late. There was a parcel that Salim wanted delivered, and Lucky said that he would do it on Friday or Saturday. You see, the murder was on Thursday. He made an arrangement to do something on the day after or two days after. We had a film that night, Black Orpheus, for anyone who didn't want to play, but everyone drifted away to the tables. He was his complete normal self. We loved him. He was a great friend. We saw him several nights a week. He was very charming and very intelligent. He loved his kids and was panicked by his wife's behavior. He had been drinking so much. Otherwise, you wouldn't make such a mistake as he made. There's more, but I can't tell you. What do you mean, Dunn asks. We were talking about this down in Mexico at Jimmy's. They said I could only talk about the dinner the night before. Mary Haley and what she's referring to is, of course, in 1993, the Jimmies would be Jimmy Goldsmith down in Mexico, one of his luxury hotspots. This happens with the whole Mayfair set in the 90s. Y'all, from the 70s to the 90s and a lot of years after, everybody is tight-lipped about what happens. Even our man Nick had to use his best skills to get what he could get. What does happen? The night of November 7th, 1974. The night that no one talks about. The events of the night of the murder of Sandro Rivet are coming to you in the next episode. Until we meet again then, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.